Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, of Cointel Pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Ha. We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here of Cointel Pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Greetings, everyone. It gives me great pleasure to convene the first discussant panel for this, the second symposium on reparations under international law for enslavement of African persons in the Americas and the Caribbean, following the first symposium that was held in 2021. Welcome. We've already had a very rich series of discussions today. We heard powerful opening remarks from Greg Schaefer, President of the American Society of International Law. Judge Robinson, I'm getting a message from you that you're having trouble hearing me. Let me do a tech check. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm getting word that I can be heard, so I will continue. Welcome, everyone. This is the first discussant panel for this, the second symposium on reparations under international law for enslavement of Af African persons in the Americas and the Caribbean. We've had a very rich series of discussions today. We heard powerful opening remarks from Greg Schaefer, President of the American Society of International Law, and from Vereen Shepherd, Director of the Center for Reparation Research at the University of the West Indies. We then heard insightful and illuminating presentations from Judge Patrick Robinson of the International Court of Justice and from Sir Hilary Beckles, Vice Chancellor of the, of the West Indies. Judge Robinson, and Sir Hilary Beckles provided an overview of legal and economic aspects of the case for reparations. Finally, we were able to hear the report from Coleman Bazelon and Alberto Vargas of the Brattle Group Consultancy, presenting findings from a larger team of researchers who devoted their considerable expertise to providing and substantiating estimates for damages both during and after the period of formal transatlantic chattel slavery. That report with the rest of today's earlier discussions sets the stage for the current panel in which we'll have the opportunity to hear from three distinguished speakers, Professors Mamadou Abiyé, Adrian Wing, and Don Marshall. We will hear from the speakers in that order. I'll briefly introduce them now, and then I'll turn the floor to Dr. Abiyé. Thank you again for joining this discussion. So first we'll hear from Dr. Mamadou Abiyé, who's Associate Professor of International Law at the Grotius Center for International Legal Studies at Leiden University. He holds a PhD from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies and is also a graduate of Harvard Law School, the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights, and the Hague Academy of International Law. His thesis on agreements concluded between colonial powers and local political entities as a means of acquiring territorial sovereignty, was awarded the Paul Guggenheim Prize in International Law in 2016. He's also served as lecturer at the Graduate Institute of International Development Studies and a special assistant to the President of the International Court of Justice. Next, we'll hear from Professor Adrian Wing, who is the Associate Dean for International and Comparative Law Programs and the Bessie Dutton Murray Professor at the University of Iowa College of Law, she serves in a number of other leadership roles as well at the University of Iowa, including as the director of the Center for Human Rights. 
She's an author of more than 140 publications and is the editor of the groundbreaking volumes Critical Race Feminism, a Reader, and Global Critical Race Feminism, an International Reader. Her U.S.-oriented scholarship has focused on race and gender discrimination, and her international scholarship has emphasized Africa and the Middle East, international law and feminism, international law and race, and the Arab world and women's rights, among other topics. Last but certainly not least, we'll hear from Professor Don Marshall, who is University Director of the renowned Sir Arthur Lewis Institute of Social and Economic Studies at the University of the West Indies. He sits on the boards of a number of key scholarly journals and has authored the volume Caribbean Political Economy at the Crossroads, NAFTA and Regional Developmentalism, published by Paul Grave Macmillan, and he's the editor and co-author of a number of other volumes and articles. His research has centered on addressing the Caribbean international political economy complex over time with the express aim of highlighting where development transformation is possible via the structural opportunities on offer at specific conjunctures. And he's also focused on industrial policy issues and democracy and governance in the Eastern and wider Caribbean. So we truly have an eminent panel of commentators and it's my great privilege to be able to convene this panel and begin this discussion. Dr. Abie, I now turn the floor to you. Thank you very much, uh, Thomas, for uh, this kind introduction and uh, for uh, giving me uh, the floor. I hope you can hear me well and uh, there is no problem. So, okay. Uh, I would like to thank the organizer for this opportunity and uh, giving me to submit the virtual report and to engage for a second time with this very interesting question of uh, reparation of the breaches of international law that occurred during our period. It's also the opportunity to commend Judge Robinson for carrying on this project to the end and for bringing all of us together. The discussion table. My third note of thanks uh, goes to the Bracken Group, which has produced a fantastic report. Let me say the report is very clear, easy to read, and I would say even for international lawyers. So, uh, this is a map, it deals with numbers, but really very accessible. And I was extremely impressed by the way that they have been able to make clear the different parameters that they are taking into account when they are assessing the amount of the breaches of the international community. I also admirative of the fact that the patients are really treated and this really facilitates the but here I am a discussion and I need to find a number of um, issues that I could highlight. And my perspective has been to identify some key issues which I believe someone who is not who would not share the agenda to pay reparation may raise when he or she receives uh, the report. So my goal is really to make sure that we are all, uh, we look at the reports from also uh, what I could consider areas where it could improve. So that we look at areas where the report could be improved. 
And although I don't have an answer to all the comments uh, or the issues that I've explained, uh, I think that it will be well, uh, it will be useful to raise them at this stage. And I think I will just make uh, four uh, comments, three that are uh, methodological, and one which is substantive and concerns uh, the place of Africa in the report. So, concerning the first three uh, methodological comments, I saw that a different juncture in the report, uh, the report decides to go systematically for the lowest number of their uh, estimates. So, for instance, if you look at page 97, the number of people born in theory, after taking into account uh, the different parameters, the report decides to take what is considered to be the lowest bound of the number of people that were born in, uh, into, the, into, into slavery. And when I read that, read that I, the, what I had in mind was Mamadou, just checking with you, is, is everything all right? We we were getting a little bit muffled sound, but otherwise you you look good. Okay. Uh is it better? This is better, yes. You are clearer. Okay. So let me just uh change okay, turn the camera on. Okay, good. So let's uh let them uh, We'll continue. So I was saying that I would make three methodological comments before uh, making a, a substantive uh, comment which relates to the place of Africa in the in the report. And with respect to the first methodological comment, I noted that at different juncture in the report, the report focuses on the lowest number of their estimate. So, for instance, when they are assessing uh, the number of people born into slavery, uh, the report decided to look at the lowest number that they could uh, find. I understand that this can be explained by caution, by the fact that we want to remain on the safe side. But the question is whether this is uh, a legal issue which should therefore be assessed as a matter of law, or whether it is just a matter of uh, assessing the damages or uh, calculation, which could be left to uh, economists. And it seems to me that at some point, at least if it was at an international court or tribunal, it would be rather the court who will decide what is the degree of certainty that it has with respect to uh, the different numbers. And probably 
it would not systematically go for the lower number of the estimate. But Judge Robinson is with us, and I would like to to hear his views uh, on 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 this on this point. So perhaps it might be useful for uh, the report to indicate the lowest bound, what could be the average, and the I would say the the maximum number and then leave it to lawyers to find the criteria that they believe as far as uh, accuracy is, 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 is uh, concerned to determine what is, uh, as a matter of law, the, the, the correct, uh, at least the number which can be judicially uh, approved. My second concern also relates to a statement that I found uh, in the in the report, and it really relates again in this articulation of trust between lawyers and economists in assessing uh, uh, damages. And uh, it was it it's it's it reads at page thirty six that sexual violence against slave women was legal at that time. And in footnotes, you have a, refer, uh, a reference to a judgment of the uh, United States uh, Supreme Court. Uh, having worked a lot with uh, colonial history, I came to be a little bit skeptical about uh, this, kind of, uh, this kind of statement. And I'm not making a firm view as to whether it is correct or not. It's just that I believe that the issue should be investigated a little bit more in order to, before relying, before taking it uh, for granted. And, but if I was to speak, not just as a lawyer, but just as a matter of legal reasoning, I would say one thing. The reason why this kind of statement tend not to be true is the fact that they, it's not the law which is, the law prohibits rape. Now, you consider that a slave is not a human being and therefore you use it as a property, including uh, uh, committing sexual violence against her. If later it is proved that you were wrong in your uh, characterization of a human being as a property, I don't think that this makes your act lawful. So it's from this uh, background that I come from, and that's the reason why I look at it uh, with, uh, with, 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 uh, yes, with some reservation. So what I was wondering whether would be whether in areas such as this one, if it was not better to rely more on legal input and not take things uh, easily. Uh, for granted. And thirdly, I had a sense when reading the report that the report was relying extensively on U.S. Uh, practice. And to give you an example, uh, I, I remember that uh, when trying to ascertain the percentage of uh, physical uh, injury, uh, the report used as a base rate uh, the percentage of physical injury that occurred during uh, the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks. So it's, it's difficult, it's, it's difficult. And I don't have an alternative because 
uh, it's very there is no way to to know exactly whether in the U.S. in different uh, uh, places where uh, slavery was taking place, what was the percentage of uh, physical injury compared to death. But it seems to me that if to the extent possible, and I understand that it's uh, it can be just uh, practically impossible to, to, to do it, but it will be good to try to diversify the sources of base rate. And there are, there are parts in the report where this is done, but there are more areas where uh, U.S. practice is, uh, is uh, quickly uh, taken uh, into, into account. Now, there is one area, one, uh, one substantive comment that I would like to make, and it relates to the fact that uh, the quantum of the damage that is calculated does not take into account the damage that could be owed to African countries themselves. And uh, I agree with Sir Beckles that if, uh, that if we want this reparation project to be successful, it would require uh, the combined efforts of African countries and the Caribbean and all the defendants uh, to, to, to push in the same direction. So I was wondering whether it, uh, whether it will not be good to take into account also the compensation and try to estimate uh, the compensation that would need to be paid to uh, African countries and uh, people in Africa for, uh, for, for slavery. And when it comes to calculating this exact quantum, I was wondering whether our focus on the breaches, on the damage caused by the breaches of international law during slave trade uh, was really the, uh, the only approach that we could, uh, we could take. Because I felt that we could also perhaps draw from the Marxist concept of uh, original accumulation of uh, capital. And the reason why I'm saying this is that we live in a capitalist uh, society. And in a capitalist uh, society, it's very difficult to be a player when you don't have uh, original capital. If you don't have, in the beginning of the game, the capital that is needed in order to transform your resources into wealth and into uh, uh, more capital in order to play. And I believe that one of the uh, obstacles, the obstacles to African countries and uh, Caribbean and Pacific countries to development is having access to this uh, original capital. But we should think at the moment when Europe launched its uh, development, it was able to get this free access to capital, free access to capital, in part through, by commodifying and chattelizing Africans during colonialism, and then by exploiting their lands and resources, uh, catalyzation and commodification during the slavery, and then exploitation of the lands and natural resources uh, during colonialism. So the question then becomes whether 
instead of thinking of calculating the amount of uh, of uh, compensation to be paid based on uh, the breaches of international law in the 19th century, the question does not become how can we uh, make sure that the descendant of uh, people who were formerly enslaved uh, get access to original capital? How do we make sure that they get access to original capital in order to be able to prompt uh, their uh, their development, but not only also the capital, because it's not just paying money and disappearing. It's also looking at the current system of international relations and removing all the hidden obstacles, the structural obstacle, if you take into it uh, the monetary and financial rules and all the other rules, economic rules, which are uh, making it more difficult for those countries who have been who have been under uh, slavery and then colonization and then uh, neo-colonialism to really engage freely in uh, international uh, development. It seems to be that this approach would be forward-looking, and uh, the, it's, uh, the fact that it gives a result to be attained in terms of development is much, much better than just uh, paying money and believing that it absolves uh, uh, all the breaches of international law that were uh, occurring. But really, this is a recent idea that I've been thinking about, so I look forward to hearing your views. And I thank again the Bratzel Group and the organizer for uh, this uh, stimulating report and discussion. Thank you very much. I am wondering if I should, uh, I've been asked to the chat to go next, but I'm wondering if I should do that um, without the intervention of the moderator, or should I just go ahead? Um, because there was an error in the running order as listed and as stated before. So um, I've been asked to, to go next. Yeah. Uh, do I please, yes. please go ahead, Professor Marshall. My apologies. Oh. Uh, no problem, no problem. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, my intervention is intended to do two things. One, I want to acknowledge the, first I want to acknowledge the very difficult task of the framers of this report in trying to, including those that are not presenting but listed as contributors to the report, in trying to uh, come up with virtually a very difficult task of trying to estimate the cost of damage and the cost of loss and uh, arising from enslavement, arising from genocide, uh, as Sahiri indicated, genocide that was also part of that experience, and uh, certainly from the Caribbean um, region's vantage point, this story also includes attempts at native genocide with the indigenous people. So um, we, we do have that element also to consider when we are looking to estimate the extent to which there has been 
uh, a near impossible um, calculus around the, the kind of harms done to Caribbean people and their descendants, including, of course, as I indicated earlier, descendants of um, indigenous peoples. And then we want to also include in that group uh, maroon communities, um, in Jamaica especially. So I want to applaud the effort uh, to, to come up with a quantification where uh, some of us may be philosophically wrestling with the idea that some things cannot really be reduced to um, monetary values. Um, I am one that's wrestling with that, but not in a way that uh, suggests that there's closure uh, around efforts and scholarship to uh, bring, around, bring about a quantification matched with an idea that the reparatory justice process uh, really ought to be understood as one that goes beyond um, current models of intervention that speaks of aid, donor assistance, and um, other forms of providing capital, materials, and technical assistance to countries, regions, families uh, that have been affected by this historical wrong. Um, so I should say that philosophically, I want to uh, indicate that from the way I see it, the challenge really we have is the kind of grammar we will employ for claims making, for the, uh, the claims making that uh, is part and parcel of the reparatory justice uh, struggle, indeed the reparations endeavor that an appeal that goes beyond uh, that that Caribbean people and, uh, have been engaging. It connects up with uh, what the brother who just spoke about uh, when he speaks of global Africa's appeal for reparations. So uh, my concern my intervention really is about the, the grammar we employ, the way in which we speak about cost, damage, loss, etc. And I want to say that there are dangers inherent in trying to reduce this to and I'm not accusing the premises report of doing so, but you know the more you sort of sort of um, uh, a quandary in epistemology, a quandary that develops when you try to produce uh, a source of information and knowledge rooted in trying to come up with a positivist calculus of measurable objective damages, while seeking to acknowledge that you're really, it really is difficult because a lot, a lot of the damage is incalculable. So that um, one of the moderate, the moderator of this morning session would have indicated that, he, and throughout the challenge, you want to know how we would quantify psychic, psychological loss, psychological, psychological damage. Sorry, um, because that that's really difficult to, to quantify. So the premise of the reports. Uh, are doing brilliant work and it's governed by an intention that we must um, really calculate the cost of um, the weight of the loss, uh, prefer the framing. The weight of the loss, the weight of the damages, the weight of this historical wrong. And uh, if we had to steer or lever the discussion 
away from just talking about monetary values and to talk about um, building and bridging a process of reparatory justice of which an estimation of the harms is a part and parcel of what we talk about when we're talking about reparatory justice. If we talk about um, trying to come up with an estimate of the harms, then it paves the way morally, ethically, epistemologically to speak about ways in which we undertake repair and renewal. Because once you've established that there were harms, and from the best efforts at quantifying such, we come up with X figure, Y figure, as brilliantly postulated by the framers of the report and those that spoke to that report today. I think it pays away for them, for us to, 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 to then say, look, um, building a bridge in a process of reparatory justice means we come to grips with the costs associated, uh, well, we come to grips with the need for justice and accountability for the unremedied and unprecedented wrongs against humanity and every relation for sustainable being and becoming in life. Justice cannot be secured, we would argue, if the moral and spiritual debt is elided and redressed, overlooked. So when I look at the report, I see an estimate of the harms and a scope, an optics for addressing the need for um, redress. So, um, so I would say that repair is, ought to be seen as an ethical project entailing the healing of relations and the status of the parties. And we want to also add and suggest that even as we come up with a quantum of what these harms have caused the regions and peoples affected, we start off with a philosophical position, position that the violators cannot redress the weight of the loss and that the estimation of harms provides only a moral reckoning towards needs produced in the context of injustice. So because of the injustice accumulated, sedimented, carried forward, the needs produced, the, need, the, the harms will produce needs in the context of injustice. And it's the descendants that continue to bear the brunt of the injustice. So reparations then in that sense is about addressing and redressing the needs of the descendants of these peoples for whom crimes were committed, for whom genocide and attempts at near genocide were committed, and for whom the, um, uh, their humanity was denied uh, through enslavement, etc. So we're talking about a reckoning that ought to be addressed with um, in, in tangible ways. And it's, the, it's those that suffer the harm that have to estimate what that cost will entail. And um, I think it's important that we, we make the point that it's, you know, we need to listen to those who carry and live the legacies of race and harm, the legacies of racialized wealth and exchange. And that, uh, indeed, if we're talking renewal, 
if we're talking, uh, and I'm saying we're talking, if we're talking socio-ecological and economic renewal of Caribbean countries, for example, in light of the harms that were caused to the people, the biodiversity, the ecological harm, if we start to do an estimate of all the harms caused, say, to the Caribbean as a region within the Americas, then we're beginning to talk about the need for redress and repair. And these figures then become very, very relevant. When we have shifted the grammar of claims making away from one that says, you owe me X based on a calculus of damage and loss, you owe me X, to one where it says, you are ethically driven and bounded, but you need to address reparatory justice as an urgent need. And that reparatory justice will include looking at the estimate of the harms associated with human degradation and suffering, the socio-ecological and economic degradation of these regions, and indeed, and indeed uh, all this has to be steered along a plane that says, Repair and renewal is what reparatory justice should look like in public. Reparatory justice and how it will look like in private will take the form of the apologies, will take the form of building bridges, people-to-people -people bridges back, um, with, with African countries, West Africa particularly. You know, there are lots of psychological repair that Rastafari, indigenous people, others make that comes to, that speaks to what reparatory justice should look like for every person. And it should involve re-engagement with lands, re-engagement with Mother Africa, et cetera, et cetera. But what reparatory justice should look like in public should take the form of um, recompense in the direction of repair or renewal of these economies and these societies and, and descendants who find themselves Structurally, at the, at the structurally poor, uh, structurally suffering from the loss of um, not having uh, intergenerational wealth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the watchwords for me is about repair and renewal, and um, especially um, um, exciting is the quantum leap made in attempts to cost and estimate uh, what those harms entailed, uh, while humbly suggesting these figures, no matter how much trillions, cannot really uh, be seen as representative of the kinds of psychological damages that continue to be inflicted on people of color and, uh, and on the fact that they find it so structurally locked out because their life chances are overdetermined by race and color and how that works in, in a world order dominated by super, white supremacist logics. I will see that at this point, yield at this point, sorry. You're still muted, Adrian. 
Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, Chantal, I'll assume that I just should start uh, as uh, uh, happened with our, our last speaker. Uh, first of all, I'm very, very delighted um, to thank uh, all of the organizers for this event, uh, especially His Excellency Judge Robinson and his uh, incredible leadership. Thanks also to ASIL President uh, Gregory Schaefer, addressed us this morning, and staffer West Wrist, who, who just intervened at this moment when I was still in mute. I'd also like to thank the University of West Indies and Professor Vereen Shepard. I actually wish this event was live there uh, in Iowa right now. It's, um, you know, below freezing, and I have enjoyed my visits uh, to your campus. And, of course, we have the very hardworking organizers, uh, Natalie Reed and Professor Chantal Thomas. And I'm, uh, of course, delighted to be joined by my co-panelists, uh, Professor Mamadou Hebier and Professor Don Marshall. Also speaking today as the co-founder, a co-founder and former co-chair of BASIL, Blacks of ASIL. Uh, as I hope many of you know, BASIL was started in 2014, and it has had a rich history of involvement in ASIL activities. And my fellow BASIL co-founder, uh, the Honorable Gabrielle Kirk McDonald, who was also an honorary president of BASIL, uh, and also, as I'm sure everyone knows, a former president of ICTY, her spirit uh, is here with us. I don't know if she's online or not. Uh, so Basil is very uh, pleased to be involved with this event. And I uh, enjoyed being involved in the 2021 conference where I had the pleasure of uh, introducing Sir Hillary, who uh, this morning gave us some very comments. I relate very personally to this topic of reparations as the descendant of slaves in the United States. On the other hand, I realize my own privilege as I am a tenured chaired professor at the University of Iowa, and I've been here for 36 years, and I am a third generation college graduate, yet uh, as the statistics uh, have presented my group, African Americans, remains disproportionately lacking wealth in large part due uh, not only to what happened during the slavery period, but of course the subsequent subjugation that the report uh, definitely highlights. My seven children and my 19 grandchildren face racism every day in the United States. It hasn't stopped. My partner, James Somerville, who is 65 years old and a dark-skinned African-American, has faced even more discrimination than I have as a light-skinned African-American. And we face this every day. I also have family from Korea. 
Adrian, you're you were muted again for some reason. I don't know what happened. Okay. Uh, did you hear me mention James? Uh, yes. We you were just saying you have family from, and then we you got cut off. Okay, good. I don't know why it uh, did that, but I have family from the Caribbean as well as from Africa. I have indigenous roots, and also I have uh, white. Uh, ancestry, the nearest white relative to our knowledge is my great-great-grandfather. So I represent uh, a melange of people that is very typical of many, many African-Americans. Also, I was formally involved with the National Conference of Black Lawyers for many years, and we were deeply involved in issues of reparations, working with groups like in COBRA and others, and it is a shame that 40 years after my own personal uh, involvement that we are still discussing uh, these issues. On the other hand, we know we're discussing issues that have occurred over 400 years. So we're actually making progress that we are at this point where Brattle has produced an incredible uh, draft trying to quantify the unquantifiable. So what I'm going to uh, focus on uh, is intersectionality, uh, as uh, Chantal Thomas said when she introduced me. Um, I am the editor of um, two readers, one called Critical Race Feminism, and the other is Global Critical Race Feminism. Both of them involve the status of women of color, whether they be in the United States or in other countries. Uh, the report doesn't mention this, but uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw of UCLA and Columbia Law Schools is uh, well known globally for bringing this infectional um, commentary into the legal um, academy and, and the writing therein. And so I was uh, delighted to see the report actually had uh, several references, intersectionality, in, uh, and you often don't get reports at all that even comment uh, on that. But um, I'm always pushing more. Uh, so, uh, for instance, I was glad to see uh, – you know, a subsection of that has to do with the gender-based violence, and I appreciated the presentation where there was an attempt to quantify the gender-based violence, um, but I, uh, there's a way that we can try to push it in further, and um, it's not an additive process. But uh, in my writing, I call it a multiplicative process. So you you have to look at not, you know, plus female and then a few things happen to those females, but the multiplier effect of having uh, to look at not only race, not only gender, but also color, pregnancy status, parent status, marital status, age, class, and other health statuses, all will be intersecting, affecting uh, the women that we are concerned with in particular. 
And of course, we know in many cases they were not permitted to keep their children. The families were separated. I was interested to hear in the Caribbean when they needed to, to increase the population and couldn't get fresh slaves. That some places did some incentives to try to increase the population. Uh, and uh, in the U.S., uh, we all know example of the slave owners uh, raping uh, many, many of their female slaves uh, as a means of increasing the population along with them forcing uh, sex between uh, the slaves. So uh, I'm not sure of the answers, but somehow this needs to be fleshed out because when I looked at the number uh, of, of the amount listed for sexual violence, I thought it was actually um, a bit low in these large numbers. And then I think somewhere it says there's maybe 58% of the women may have been sexually assaulted, and, and I don't know where that number would really come from, but why wouldn't we presume 100% of the people are sexually assaulted? And I said the people because we can't forget the other side of the gender issue, that there are countless incidents where men were also sexually assaulted, and yet a lot of that gets suppressed. Um, and then there also could be examples of homosexuality among the slave owners and whatever they might have felt they could get away with with respect to their, their male slaves. And so we need to uh, note or have something that the sexual violence can also be directed uh, as it can be now to men. There's also something about uh, children over, four, over 15 um, and assaults, et cetera. And uh, we know children under 15 can be assaulted as well. And, of course, in earlier eras, uh, even in a, uh, a society where there's any of this violence, you might have uh, sexual activity or marriages occurring with uh, children uh, much younger than, than 15. And so there would be a need to get uh, deal with younger, uh, maybe perhaps younger ages than, and ha than had been considered here. Another uh, concept, uh, my second concept I wanted to focus on briefly, uh, is the non-quantifiable, which I have called in my own work spirit injury, that emotional and spiritual side of injury, which although it's hard to quantify, there are occasions where it can be. And so in U.S. law, for instance, you have the concept of intentional infliction of emotional distress. And they will quantify that. Maybe not enough, but um, perhaps there is uh, some way to, to work out numbers for, for this kind of a, of a era. You know, and when you imagine the, the multiplicity of loss, when you have lost your family, participation in your community, in your clan or your ethnic group, in your religion, right, being ripped out of their religions, their customs, the languages, the food, the music, the clothing, the education, the wealth, 
the status, all of that uh, in one sense could be looked at as unquantifiable, but perhaps we need to think about ways where we could quantify at least uh, at least part of that. We have to at least try, I think, but um, even if we come up with a number, let's say it's, I don't know, uh, 100 trillion or 200 trillion, of course, our next step is who can we get, uh, what entities, what governments can we get to pay uh, even fractions of, of this amount? And, of course, even more, who do they pay it to? Do you pay it to the whole government of a country, to non-governmental organizations, or some other type of entity to try to um, figure out um, where, what to do with, with for some of money it is, and what do we do about the blowback that will no doubt be in many countries? People will say, well, the person wasn't a slave, she's, you know, a, a fancy law professor. Well, she or people like her get any money. And if it goes to a group, well, you know, is it misused? So all of those critiques of reparations that are out there, we would have to do. And even say, well, a government should owe it. Um, I was involved with South Africa and the constitution-making process there. And so, uh, as you know, they had Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and there was a little part that reparations. Well, the, the, the government, the post-apartheid government of South Africa didn't have the money to pay all of the black people who had had land stripped from them and their ancestors by the prior white government. So, you know, having holding a government liable if it's a, a poor country uh, is not going to work. But all of us enjoy going to London and Paris and experiencing all the riches that those countries have had, a lot of it based on the backs of our ancestors. So in closing, I just want to say uh, this is a, a wonderful start, and I look forward to seeing the later drafts and also to participating in uh, the rest of this symposium tomorrow. So thank you. Thank you so much, Adrienne, and thanks to all of the speakers. My apology for the error in introducing you. I'm sorry to have added that element of confusion and distracted from what has been a brilliant uh, series of presentations. Thank you all for truly insightful remarks and for continuing this dialogue. We do have a few moments that remain, and I would like to ask uh, each of the speakers, whether you would like to expand on any of your earlier remarks, or in particular, if you'd like to pose any questions uh, to the other speakers based on the other presentations. So I'd just like to open the floor now. Adrian. I agree with uh, what Professor Ebier said that, uh, you know, looking in depth at uh, the situation in Africa today is quite critical, and uh, I don't know if uh, that can be added to this project or a totally separate project. And, of course, the African Union 
and others uh, may need to be more involved. Uh, but uh, clearly, that part of it, I would love to see uh, this kind of quantification uh, begin to be attempted. And maybe that it's already out there, and I just haven't seen it yet. So if any of you know, or anybody listening, uh, I'd like to know if there is something like that out there. Mama Du, would you want to speak to that? I was also very interested in that element of uh, your remarks. Um, today we speak about human capital, and one could think about the loss of human capital in terms of the depopulation of African territories um, as one potential element of quantification of damage. I think there immediately I, I also think about possible objections that might be raised in terms of shared responsibility. Um, we sometimes hear about, uh, you know, sometimes as a sort of a politicized distraction from conversations around reparations, uh, claims of shared responsibility for uh, transatlantic chattel slave trade across European and African territories. But I think in general that that is such a fascinating question. So I'd, I'd love to hear as well any, any other remarks you might have. I also see that Judge Robinson has raised a hand and would like to um, ask a question. So perhaps we could also hear from Judge Robinson and then see if um, we have some time for any additional uh, remarks. Judge Robinson? You have the floor, Judge Robinson. And I see that you're unmuted, but I don't think we're getting any audio. Having difficulty. Having difficulty. Okay, so maybe I can turn the floor for the moment back to Mamadou if you wanted to respond to the previous line of, of questioning. Yeah. I think that uh, the African part of the report is, would be interesting. It would be definitely fascinating. And I also agree with Adrian that the AU should take uh, leadership in that, in, in that respect. I don't believe that the claims that African countries were or African people were uh, complicit in the enslavement, it was really an entire dynamic. If you look at the beginning of the slavery and the slave trade, you had African polities, kingdoms, fighting against it. But uh, the slave traders managed to, dis uh, to disrupt the traditional structures and to engage in new dynamics, which allowed the trade to to last for uh, a, number of, a number of years, uh, centuries, actually. So I don't think that this will be uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, a major obstacle. I agree with you that we could think about the loss of uh, human capital, but it's not only that. You have to realize that uh, slave trade, by extinguishing all the entities which were trying to constitute themselves as states, an empire created a gap of, politi of uh, political organization 
which facilitated colonialism in the uh, in the 18 and the, and the 19th and the 19th century and even today when you look for instance at areas such as mali burkina faso niger which were the areas where people run from uh, the coast and slave traders in order to go interland these are again the same areas where you struggle to have a strong political uh, organization where you have jihadi groups and uh, entering as uh, almost at will. So it is a phenomenon that had strong disrupting uh, consequences in the entire. So again, another uh, anecdote that I can tell you. Even now in Burkina Faso, we have an expression uh, in uh, Jula language, which is a language which is spoken in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Niger, in Senegal, in Guinea, in Cote d'Ivoire, in almost all West Africa. It's the most spoken language in West Africa. And we still have an expression, and I will say it in Jula, which is to say, if you do, I will sell you. You see, it is still there. It is still there saying, oh, this idea that we could be selling each other is still there. And this lack of trust, this lack of confidence cannot allow strong political organization, a strong economy. No one wants to trust the other. And all this has to find its roots in the colon in the slave experience. So how will you be able to uh, erase all this uh, traumatic past? How will you be able to find ways to, 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 to compensate for it? I don't necessarily believe that we have to try to identify breaches of international law and establish a duty to compensate. What I really propose here is to say, you found your original capital to develop here. Now you are developed and we are happy about it. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's good. Now bring back the original capital so that us, so we could also uh, pursue uh, development. It's true our destiny, destinies have been disrupted for three, four, five uh, centuries, but now we have the opportunity to write a different story and you can contribute to it because you benefited. Uh, uh, from it. And of course, even if you don't pay the money, at least show good will, show good effort by removing all the hidden shackles in the international economy, which is still keeping African countries uh, poor and exploited. We could continue this conversation, um, I think, for, for many hours, if not days, uh, but luckily the conversation will continue. We'll reconvene tomorrow. I believe that we must close uh, the session in order to keep to time. Um, perhaps I'll just give an opportunity for any closing remarks or final observations from the speakers. Yeah, and thank you. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I do believe that 
there is the possibility of several kinds of emancipatory projects, reparations projects that could be undertaken uh, simultaneously. I do think that the work to bring West Africa squarely into the picture is urgent work. It's urgent epistemologically speaking even because uh, the basis upon which we can understand each other uh, and, and shape and control narratives is, is a critical first step to winning hearts and minds. So there is a prevailing perception of collusion, culpability, and so on, that has been established not by anecdotes or, um, or, or, or fables, but that has been established through the venerable writings within Eurocentric circles and, and universities and so on. And there's a way in which that has to be addressed head on. We must have the engagement. We must have... Uh, a confrontation with those kinds of narratives deliberately so that we can truly identify, um, you know, there may have been complicit leaders and regimes, but that does not speak for the continent. It does not speak for whole countries. It does not speak for the resistance from below civil society across West Africa, an object outrage against being tra traumatized and re-traumatized with the threat of being sent as the brother just spoke, being sent to you know? So we need to know more if we're to understand ourselves and, and how racialized systems of wealth and advantage become consecrated as a common sense force in our lives, right? Well said. We've, we've heard about uh, so, so many different aspects uh, from epistemological, moral, the philosophical, as well as the institutional, the legal, the economic, the empirical. So it really has been a very rich set of interventions in this session. And we encourage everyone to join us tomorrow for the continuation of this symposium. The uh, session tomorrow will be convening at 10 a.m. Eastern time and Jamaica time. And you can refer to the website ASL.org slash events slash reparations for more details. Thank you again to the speakers. Thank you to Judge Robinson, to Sir Hilary Beckles, to Greg Schaefer, to Dr. Vereen Shepard. Thanks to all of you. And um, I will bid you uh, goodbye for today. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone joining us for this, the second day of the second symposium on reparations under international law for transatlantic chattel slavery in the Americas and the Caribbean. Uh, this is the final day of the second of two symposia, and we are delighted that you could join us again. Uh, for those who are just joining us, uh, and we're not able to tune in yesterday or to view the video yesterday, um, we will begin with a short summary of what happened uh, uh, yesterday during the first day of the symposium. First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Natalie Reed, and I have the pleasure and privilege of being one of the organizers of the symposium. Yesterday, during the first day of the symposium, Judge Robinson reminded us of the conclusions of the last symposium which established that transatlantic, transatlantic chattel slavery 
was unlawful at the time it was committed, and that as a result, former slaveholding countries have an obligation to make full reparation under international law to the descendants of Africans they enslaved, but that neither that determination nor the calculation of the amounts due can be left up to the perpetrators. Beyond monetary payment, international law also requires that satisfaction be given including if compensation would not be sufficient to fully remedy the wrong. That satisfaction could of course include a formal apology and depends upon the nature of the, uh, the, the wrongs in question. It may include of course consideration of uh, whether for example, the psychological harms that were suffered uh, by those who were enslaved may be appropriately addressed by monetary compensation or by some other form of remedial step. Judge Robinson also discussed recent developments in between the first symposium and this symposium, such as acknowledgments from governmental and major institutions of European countries, um, and noted that these have been a positive step. For example, the apology offered by the Prime Minister of the Netherlands but that the steps that had been discussed publicly in recent uh, uh, times may well be insufficient to fully redress the harms committed during transatlantic chattel slavery and the consequences, the enduring legacy of transatlantic chattel slavery that we continue to see and feel today. We then heard a powerful keynote address from uh, Sir Hilary Beckles, Vice Chancellor of the University of the West Indies, who explained uh, that uh, the, the impacts and the consequences, again, of transatlantic chattel slavery, not solely from a legal perspective, but also from uh, a, a historical one. And from that historical perspective, discussed whether and how transatlantic chattel slavery at different times could be considered to have been a form of genocide against the populations involved. Sir Hillary elaborated on the situation that enslaved peoples were left with after slavery formally ended. And in response to questions and observations from Judge Robinson, offered insightful comments on whether and how those who are seeking now to uh, grapple with the consequences of transatlantic chattel slavery, including the legal qualification as genocide or other breaches of international law, could infer intent behind slave owners' conduct and policies throughout the relevant period in the Caribbean and throughout the Americas. We then heard from the economists of the Brattle Group who uh, presented in a briefer form than the report, which is also available from the, the webpage for the symposium, the estimate, the, the calculation, the, the, the quantification they had prepared of reparations due first for the period during transatlantic chattel slavery, and second for the period after transatlantic chattel slavery. Uh, the uh, colleagues from the Brattle Group, uh, Dr. Vargas and Dr. Bazalon, um, in addition to presenting those figures, really grappled with the idea of the scale of those figures and provided some context and perspective on how the sheer uh, uh, mind-boggling in some ways sums involved really reflect both the number of those who were the initial victims of transatlantic chattel slavery, the period over which uh, the uh, breaches of international law were committed, and of course, the important consequence of the passage of time 
since uh, those initial breaches were committed. Among the heads of damage that the Brattle team considered, uh, uh, of course, as guided by uh, Judge Robinson's legal framework, were damages for loss of life, uncompensated labor, loss of liberty, gender-based violence, and for the period after uh, transatlantic chattel slavery, using wealth disparity as a, a method of capturing uh, a number of different harms that we continue to see today. We then had our first panel of discussants with uh, Dr. Mamadou Ebiye, Professor Don Marshall, and Professor Adrian Wayne, who discussed the analysis uh, that had been presented by the Brattle Group, but also took a broader perspective and highlighted the differences between, for example, the economic approach and the legal approach to damages, reminding us that we could also consider whether and, and how reparations are owed to the African states, and emphasizing that reparative justice must be ethically driven and not solely economically driven, as well as pushing us to take uh, significant considerations such as uh, really building on gender-based violence assessments and intersectionality in those considerations, whether and how to take those further into account in the calculation. Today, we are delighted to welcome additional esteemed discussants to continue this discussion. And we will hear from uh, Judge Abdulkali Ahmed Yusuf, member and former president of the International Court of Justice, Dr. Mustaba Kasazi, former executive head of the United Nations Compensation Commission. We will then hear some additional comments from Professor Vereen Shepherd, uh, the director of the Center for Reparation Research at the University of the West Indies, who of course has been a key participant in both symposia, is a member of the advisory committee convened by Judge Robinson for this symposium. And then we will hear some concluding remarks from Judge Robinson himself to wrap up the day and this symposium. <clears throat> so to introduce our, our discussants, again, their, their uh, uh, biographical summaries are available from uh, the, the webpage for, for the symposium. But I will very briefly uh, introduce them and then we will uh, move directly to hearing from, from each of them. So Judge Yusuf, as I uh, mentioned, is very well known to many of us in the international community as former president and uh, remaining a member of the International Court of Justice, where he has served on the court since 2009. Judge Yusuf, of course, has spent many decades uh, of uh, service uh, to Somalia and to the international community. From 1975 to 1980, he served as Somalia's delegate to the third UN Conference on the Law of the Sea. He, of course, has taught and written uh, extensively, including from the 1970s onwards. From 1987 to 1992, Judge Yusuf was Chief of the Legal Policy Service of the United Nations Conference of Trade and Development, UNCTAD, before becoming its representative and head of its New York office from 1992 to 1994. From 1994 to 2001, he served as legal advisor up to 1998, and then assistant director for African Affairs the United Nations Industrial Development Organization in Vienna. From March 2001 to January 2009, Judge was legal advisor and director of the Office of International Standards and Legal Affairs for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. 
In 2001, Judge Yusuf joined the Advisory Council of the Hague Institute, sorry, in 2011, joined the Advisory Council of the Hague Institute for Global Justice. Judge Yusuf, of course, as part of his distinguished academic career, um, has been founder and general editor of the African Yearbook of International Law and is a member of the Institut de Droit International. He is one of the founders of the African Foundation for International Law and chairman of its executive committee. Judge Yusuf, we are delighted and honored that you will join us uh, this morning and this afternoon. Dr. Murtaba Kasazi, as I mentioned, is former executive head of the United Nations Compensation Commission and, of course, was instrumental in setting up the UNCC and in resolving 2.7 million claims from over 100 countries. He's also recently served as the executive commissioner of two international mass claims programs for payment of compensation to workers. Dr. Kasazi has had as well a long and distinguished career in national and international service, having been a former judge in the courts of Tehran and worked extensively on the arbitration and settlement of claims before the Iran-US Claims Tribunal. He's also served as a vice president of the Institut de Droit International and as a visiting scholar at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Dr. Kasazi currently sits as an independent arbitrator in different disputes and serves as a board member of the Tehran Regional Arbitration Center. Dr. Kasazi, we are as well uh, uh, delighted and honored that you're able to join us today. So Judge Youssef, if I may turn to you first, we uh, welcome your comments and observations on the points made uh, in uh, the Brattle report, and more broadly on the question of reparations for uh, transatlantic chattel slavery under international law. I believe that you are currently on mute, sir. So if the administrator could take Judge, Judge Yusuf off mute. No, I think I, yes. it's fine. Excellent. We can now hear you. I the have floor unmuted. is yours, Judge Yusuf. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. and. Uh, I will not take much time because uh, I don't really have uh, a lot to say uh, about the report. I think it is a groundbreaking report. And I believe that uh, that groundbreaking uh, possibility was also offered uh, and facilitated by the first symposium and the legal guidance and legal framework paper that was prepared by Judge Robinson. Because I think uh, Judge Robinson's paper gives us uh, the legal basis uh, on which uh, discussion is and debate is on reparation is, uh, can actually be engaged and can be pursued uh, because it clarifies uh, the legal issues arising from the uh, shuttle slavery of Africans several centuries ago and of course, it is continued effects and impact on the descendants of the slaves and on the people 
who live uh, in many parts of the world uh, who were unwillingly and forcefully uprooted, uh, transported, and used as uncompensated labor uh, implantations uh, to produce for the benefit of economies in the Northern Hemisphere. And I think that uh, in your summary, you just mentioned it that uh, one, of course, of the speakers mentioned yesterday that slavery could also be considered as a genocide. I think we should stay away from that. I say we should stay away from that because slavery was undertaken because the slaves or the enslaved persons were needed actually as uncompensated labor. So there was no intent uh, to get rid of them. And those who died were actually a loss uh, to the slave owners because these people were treated as goods and as goods which could actually provide services. Not just, they were not commodities only because they were dehumanized, but they were commodities that could offer services which can be monetized. And therefore they were useful for those who engaged in slavery. And the intention of the slave owners could not and could not be and was actually far away from uh, an intention uh, to uh, get rid of them uh, to, uh, or to destroy them uh, as human beings. Uh, they were very useful for them and therefore they wanted to keep them alive and that was also part of the trade because they were being used as tradable commodities. And you don't want your tradable commodities to be destroyed or lost. Now, some of the uh, major issues that have been uh, raised by the report of the Prattle Group uh, actually, my attention was drawn to the fact that I think it is in the last page of the report. Uh, no, it is on page 70 of the report. Uh, there was a, uh, a placeholder uh, on proportional and allocation needs to be revised. And there was also a reference uh, to the uh, countries which 
by whom countries which owe which owe uh, the uh, the 100 trillion in reparations so the reference read is the more than 100 trillion in reparation is owed are not owed by a single country and i think we have to revisit uh, this kind of remarks and i will place them actually in the context of the entire discussion because i think it is very important to address not only by whom the reparations are owed, but to whom they are owed. And maybe it is much more difficult. It's not that easy in any case to establish to whom they are owed. And that is not also very clear either in the original papers or in the Prattal group papers. And uh, if we take, for example, loss of life, we will have to see uh, where those lives were lost. Were they lost? Uh, uh, immediately after the capture of the enslaved persons? Were they lost in the dungeons in which the slaves were kept before embarkation and shipment? Or were they lost in the middle passage? Or were they lost in the plantations or in the uh, slave labor camps uh, where many of these people uh, were used as slaves. I think it is very important that uh, these issues be addressed because uh, uh, then, of course, uh, the those to whom the reparations are owed will be different. Uh, whether the reparations are owed to uh, African communities who are still in Africa or whether the reparations are owed uh, to communities uh, who are in uh, the diaspora, African diaspora, uh, who are the descendants of uh, slaves. And the other important question with respect to whom it is owed, the reparations are owed, is actually uh, the reparation is owed to to a country or to a state, or are the reparation is owed to a community or a collectivity, or are the reparation is owed to individuals and. That's very important also uh, because I think that uh, this needs to be discussed and to be clarified because it will be different uh, in each of these instances what kind of reparations 
uh, will have uh, to be uh, considered uh, for different categories of uh, for different entities uh, to which the reparation is uh, may be owed. Then I come to the two categories, or in the case of the paper, I think that was originally prepared by Judge Robinson. Actually, uh, there were uh, three categories of reparations, I think. Uh, reparation is for consequences of the wrongful conduct of transatlantic shuttle slavery in the period following its formal termination. That was the first category. And then there were two categories uh, for the, of reparations for the continuing breach of the obligations owed in respect of uh, transatlantic shuttle slavery. Uh, one for the period uh, in which uh, these persons were still kept as slaves or were actually still being treated as slaves, although the, the legislation, there was legislation which actually uh, uh, terminated uh, slavery. And therefore, they were not being traded but uh, they were still being treated as slaves. And one continuation which concerns, as I understand it, uh, discrimination against the former enslaved persons and their descendants. And in the uh, Prattle group, I think there are two major categories. Uh, Reparation is for the uh, enslaved and the persons who were uh, subjected to slavery and to uh, uncompensated labor and who were deprived of their liberty, etc., and who were subjected also to sexual violence and assaults. And reparation is for continuing breach of the obligation uh, through the treatment, discriminatory treatment meted out to the descendants. And for the first one, the Prattle group uh, made a, a quantification of about, uh, I think, 78.7 a trillion, while for the second, uh, they made a quantum of 22.6 trillion. And of course, these are uh, huge amounts of money. Uh, but uh, before actually dealing with these amounts of money, uh, one has to deal uh, with uh, the purpose and objective of the reparation, for example, in the first case. 
in the case of the reparationist for loss of life uh for uh, a uh, for uncompensated labor etc uh what would be the purpose uh, would the purpose be to compensate those who are alive today and who are the descendants of the slaves and to pay them for the treatment uh that was meted out to their ancestors or is the pur- purpose uh to compensate the communities from which these persons were taken and which were deprived uh of these people as a community and which suffered of course uh because of the uh fact that a part of their population was taken away by force and shipped uh to far off lands so uh, that is one issue the second issue is uh to whom would this compensation be paid as i said before i think uh it's not easy uh, to determine that and uh, uh whether it is states collectivities and uh, and for what purpose would it be used in any case and i think therefore that the focus should not be on this uh fairest type of reparation in the form of compensation I think the focus in my view should be on the second type of reparation which would not be only in the form of compensation but which would also be in the form of satisfaction although of course satisfaction could also be applied to the first form of reparation why do i say that we should focus on the second because i think that there are millions tens uh, of millions hundreds of millions of people who are still suffering hundreds of millions in fact who are still suffering from the effects of slavery and i think it's not only uh article 14.2 of the ilc articles to which judge robinson uh referred in his paper but i think it is very important uh to keep in mind article 30 of the ilc articles on state responsibility which actually says that the state responsible for the internationally wrongful act is under an obligation to cease that act if it is continuing to cease that act if it is continuing and since of course and i agree with judge robinson that uh, 
uh, there is a continuing breach of an obligation and that the acts of slavery are continuing in the form of discriminatory treatment of the descendants of the slaves. It would be very important today to ensure the cessation of those acts. And the cessation of those acts will not only come through compensation. It will not, in my view. It will come, I think, mainly through satisfaction. And I am talking here about uh, satisfaction uh, in the form of, for example, a correct account of what happened, uh, an accurate account of the violations. That's what I mean. An accurate account of the violations and the inclusion of that accurate account of the violations in educational material at all levels throughout the world and throughout those countries where slavery was practiced. And I think this is extremely important. And it is also important to have as another form of satisfaction a public disclosure of the truth about slavery. Because I don't think that many of the societies are aware and know the truth about slavery. Of course, uh, for example, now in the Netherlands, there was a report about slavery. And as a result of that report, the prime minister offered apologies. Uh, but it's are the conclusions and the facts that have been established through that report, are they going to be part of the curriculum that is taught in schools in the Netherlands? Is there going to be an accurate account of what the Dutch slave owners did and how the Dutch East Indies Company behaved and conducted itself in the uh, acquisition and in the trade, in the slave trade. So those are, to me, an ex extremely important consideration is to be kept in mind. And I think those considerations will have to relate to the post-enslavement period and the continuing breach of the obligation, the discriminatory treatment of the descendants 
of the slaves and the uh, need for cessation because this should finally somehow come to an end and unless it comes to an end no amount of compensation will be able uh, to repair and to remedy the damage done. And I think I will stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judge Yusuf, for those, those observations, the, uh, the questions raised, uh, the, the points made. Um, while you were speaking, you had referred to a table in the Brattle Report, and we briefly showed that table. Um, if I could ask Mr. Rist to, to show the table again, just so that uh, uh, our colleagues watching on Zoom and the YouTube feed can see it. The, the report is, of course, available from the uh, symposium website. Um, and the particular table that Judge Yusuf was referring to is table 29 in the report, which is now uh, on your screen. I would encourage uh, anyone watching to review the, the full report, including this table and, of course, the, the, the tables, the figures, um, and the analysis set out in, the, uh, in full uh, in the report to understand how the Brattle team uh, developed the figures. And of course, uh, we uh, look forward to hearing from Judge Robinson in his closing remarks, um, uh, uh, in thinking about how some of the questions and considerations raised by the discussants, including those yesterday and Judge Yusuf now, will be taken into account uh, going forward. Um, we now turn to Dr. Kasazi. Um, again, we are uh, uh, indeed um, honored to have you with us today, Dr. Kasazi, with your extensive experience in dealing with mass claims under international law. Uh, the floor is yours, sir, to provide your comments and observations. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Reed, for the introduction, but also for the excellent summary that you made of the of the proceedings of, uh, of yesterday and the important point that you highlighted. Good afternoon and good day to everyone. I am very pleased and honored to participate at this uh, symposium and be a member of this panel with Judge Yusuf. And uh, I just enjoyed very much listening to him and uh, to his um, thought-provoking presentations and the issues that um, he raised. I would have liked to make some comments on that, but I don't think I have time. I leave them for, for uh, Judge Robinson. The purpose of the Brattle Group report, which we are uh, reviewing here, is to quantify and put monetary value on all the harms and damages caused by transatlantic uh, chattel slavery. This is, of course, a very difficult and challenging task that the authors have referred to it with expressions such as seemingly insurmountable and hopeless. Nevertheless, they have managed to harness this complicated task very well, and with the help of their own knowledge and research and benefiting from the available academic literature, and the body of work already done by many researchers and scholars on this issue in the last few decades, it seems that the authors have become confident enough to make a number of good assumptions on key 
issues that were necessary in order to arrive at a reasonable and convincing results. And I commend them for that. The task, of course, is not finished. And there are areas to refine and reinforce and to add more diverse backgrounds and statistics to the report. And uh, to go back again to what uh, Judge Yusuf mentioned, I think some of those comments have also added some needs for extra review of the report and fine-tuning. Fine With the time available, I would like to mainly address three four important um, issues. First, I like to look at the main methodology and model with the material assumptions, which have far-reaching effects on the quantum of compensation. This is, in fact, the part that deals with the loss of life and uncompensated uh, labor. Uh, uh, also, for the same reason, I'd like to review the interest rate and its impact on the quantification of compensation. And finally, um, to look at what is not in the report and perhaps should be there. The authors themselves have been very open and transparent on the shortcomings and the limitations of the report. The most obvious and important unquantified element of loss is the one that yesterday Judge Patrick Robinson highlighted, i.e. psychological harm. I like to discuss this matter in light of the practice of the United Nations Compensation Commission where mental pain and anguish was calculated and compensated for thousands of victims of military operations. And I don't see any reason that we shouldn't be able to do it, to do it here. Before starting on these items, I like to emphasize the importance of the statement that the authors of the report have rightly made in page 11 of the report, where the report says, Quote, there is no amount of money that would repair the harm of the enslaving millions of Africans and their descendants. The authors have also included a thoughtful quote from Professor Sheffer on that matter. I like to associate myself fully with both the statements of the authors and Professor Sheffer. Now, overview of economic uh, framework, if we can go to page 13 of the report, that would facilitate the presentation. I believe it is PDF page 13, printed page 8 of the report. Thank you very much. A brief comment here, uh, the quote from the Human Rights Commission is fine here. However, it seems to me it will be more appropriate to add or even to start with reference to the work of the International Law Commission on the draft articles on a state responsibility for internationally wrongful acts. Yesterday, Judge Robinson in his systematic uh, approach on legal issues summarize the relevant articles. Those articles could be added here. 
In addition, I would also add Article 38 that confirms that interest is part of compensation and should be calculated to ensure full reparation and that the rate and mode of calculation should be set to achieve that purpose. I would also add now, in light of what Judge Yusuf said, the article mentioned, the article that he referred to uh, on the same set of uh, uh, draft articles that uh, refers to the obligation to seize the wrongful act and the cessation. That would be important to be mentioned here as well. If we can go to the next page, please. The table, table one. This is an important table here that shows the interest rates over centuries. I agree with the approach taken in the report that inflation, uh, that the, it has calculated the inflation separately from the real interest. The obvious reason, and the reason for this approach is that uh, inflation, as was, as was explained yesterday, is in fact uh, the main component of the interest rate, of the nominal interest rate. When we take inflation out of the, what we recognize generally as interest, what remains comprises real interest rate and risks. That risk referred to as political risk. Now, political risk or generally risk, I don't think are accounted for here, and yesterday Dr. Bazelon confirmed that it is because it has been assumed that the countries involved are able to pay uh, and there is no risk. I think it's possible to view the situation differently because the risk is more general than that, it seems to me, and for me, any debt that has not been paid for a long time, here it is hundreds of years, is a risky uh, debt. So I leave this as a question for the, for the authors of the report and whether it would have any impact on the calculation uh, or not. The other point here on this uh, for the table is that the shortcut that the authors have found for avoiding a long and complicated calculation of interest is very helpful. At the same time, as explained later in the report, the bulk of the calculated compensation is on interest because of the length of time, which is quite unusual and is exceptional because of the circumstances here, because of the long period of time that has passed. So it is important that the calculation be reliable for such a heavy weight that we are going to put, put on that. And finally, uh, I see that the rates, it's on the question of the interest rate use, I see that the rates in the table are all much higher than 2.5% use in the report. Also, in the two paragraphs below the tables on the same page, I see that a slight um, contradiction the first one 
The first paragraph says that the 3% nominal interest rate used in the literature is lower than the average rate and would be a conservative and reasonable rate. So 3% is okay. However, in the second paragraph, the report calculates a nominal rate of 2.5%. We will come back to this issue of interest uh, at the later part of the, of the report when we look at hopefully table, table uh, 30. Now, if we can go to loss of life and uncompensated labor and go to page 24 on the version that I have. Uh, loss of life and uncompensated labor accounts for the main portion of the total calculated compensation. By quantifying these two important elements of loss together and applying a common methodology on both, the authors have saved lots of time and have made an amazing shortcut, which has resolved lots of issues. Not to mention that apparently this was also necessary, this imaginative way to avoid the problem of lack or shortage of data. The main assumptions that have been used here are, uh, first of all, they have to make uh, an important choice between the value of a statistical life methodology and loss of productive life methodology. I agree with their choice, which is the second one, which simply means, as, as, as you know, that taking the earning of the disease and extrapolates that into the future to the earning, expected earning period on the basis of the life expectancy, and then calculate the compensation on that basis. I think this is the right choice, choice that they have made, also because of the, I refer to International Labor Organization's Employment Injury Benefit Convention number 121, which is very well known in ILO and in the, the labor organizations, which, has, which follows the same methodology and, and do that. And in fact, um, we and I personally use this for the calculation of compensation for the victims of the Rana Plaza uh, disaster in Dhaka, and uh, also for the, for the victims and for the injured and deceased workers from the Tazreen uh, fashion company fire, which, uh, which, was, which was a big loss. And finally, in UN Compensation Commission, where there was a need to calculate um, loss of life for a large number of people, this was the method that was used also based on the, on the, on the precedent. Now, if we continue the main assumptions that have been necessary for these two elements of loss, the first one is the, the number, the total number, uh, how many enslaved persons were involved. As you see in the report, there has been a 
relatively a good portion allocated to these, and it tells me that the authors were fully aware of the importance of this of this figure, and uh, they have documented it very well. Now, if we if we please can look at Figure Four. In my version, it is on page 26. Yes, thank you. This shows a good portion of the methodology that has been that has been applied. The life expectancy for um, a slave for non-slaves, and then loss of life. This, this is what I call the genius, because the way this has been calculated, the authors didn't have to calculate separately for the disease. And in fact, they have calculated for all the 20 million enslaved that they have calculated, and they have assumed that everyone was alive until the end period of the life expectancy of a non-slave per person. And with that, they have come up with all the figures uh, that have. This means, of course, for um, compensation for the, uh, uh, I'm sorry to use these words, for the live and dead have been calculated the same. They have been treated the same. Which is, which is a feature, in a way, of the mass claims uh, processing. After this, the authors have continued with the, with the modeling uh, assumptions, which you can see two pages later. And, uh, and uh, you, will see, you will see there that they have discussed how many hours they should have used, how to calculate the day, and at the end they have agreed on a 12-hour day and seven day per week, which is correct in my view. And then the most important figure for me in the whole report comes out in page 78. Uh, I'm sorry, in page uh, 28. This is, this is the amount of wage of a worker and for one day, 0.78 cents, 78 cents of dollar per, per day. This seems small, but this is the basis of all the 54 trillion calculations that comes later. So for me, this is very important that this figure be really justified and well established and supported. And page 31, table three, which shows the total amount that, as was mentioned, amounts to 55 trillion for the loss of life and uncompensated later. In table four, which is in page 32, The authors have shown the sensi sensitivity to assumptions, which comes from the from the interest rate in in that, and you see that the 54.8 trillion goes at the middle, and 
relates on two criteria. One is the rate of interest, 2.5, which, which includes inflation, inflation and real rate of interest. And the, and the other one is the non-US wage proportion to a, to a US wage. In this situation, it has been assumed that the wage are the same and they are 100%, so they are the same wage. It comes, it comes to this, which, which seems, which seems com conserv conservative. As I said, it seems that the interest has room to change, to change a bit because of the risk and because of the comparison, but otherwise it seems, it seems fine here. Now, and my conclusion on uh, 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 this part, very briefly, the methodology used as a whole resembles mass claims methodology. But at the same time, it misses some important elements that normally we see in the mass claims processing. I'm not saying this is because of the authors. Most of these, I'm sure, could be explained because of the situation and because of the lack of information and the vastness of the task. The steps that in a standard claims processing one normally sees is sampling. When you have a large population, a huge population like here, you will take a sample, you will study the sample, then you try to make sure that you have a representative sample and that representative sample um, will be decided by a statistician who will say, who will take into account the total population and then the number of what would be representative. Then you would work on profiling on this uh, sample and prepare some general profiles that could be applied to all the other, to the rest of the populations. This makes the task very easy. And it seems until here, this is in fact what the our authors, authors of the report uh, have done. What is not here probably is that at that stage, then you will have to do some regression analysis and go back a bit and look at the outliers, the ones who stand out. For instance, if you have taken into account in profiling that the salary of the workers were uh, I don't know, $700, then you see there are some people who are asking for double and there are some people who are asking for lower. Then you will look at those outliers to find out the reason, see, see what was the reason. That we don't have here, probably because it was not possible, lack of information. That is in this situation, unfortunately, that's always an explanation. In addition, which I'm hoping it will be this one, it was not needed. Uh, I mean that the population and the samples and the rest were so similar that there was no need to separate some of them and profile them and apply them and there were no, there were no out, outliers. Now, uh, if I, I like to go to the page 43, to 45, which is non-quantified harms. Uh, 
It's on the screen. Yes, thank you. Yes, this is a place that the authors explain that the psychological harm has not been calculated and put, but they also, they also show that the lack of quantification is not an indication of the unimportance of these avenues of harm, and we therefore address them briefly below, which they refer to and all that. What I like to, not to take too much time, what I like to do is to go directly, uh, rest please, to the other documents that I gave you. What I like to mention here is that in the United Nations Compensation Commission that many of you know, it was set up in 1991 after the um, invasion of Kuwait by Iraq at the time and the war by the Allies against Kuwait and liberation of uh, Kuwait. Uh, an unprecedented compensation commission was set up by the United Nations the first time and the Security Council was the governing body. The UNCC was a subsidiary organ of the Security Council. It had three organs, Governing Council, Secretariat, Commissioners. Governing Council was setting the policy, i.e. the Security Council. It was represented by the same membership, a Secretariat that served the Governing Council, and then panels of Commissioners. We had 17 panels of Commissioners of highly qualified jurists and other professions who decided on the claim. The Secretariat prepared the, the work and they decided on that. Question of mental pain and anguish, uh, sorry, I use this because this is the way it was referred to psychological harm in UNCC. It was called mental pain and anguish. It was one of the first issues that came up. You see that this is decision eight of the Governing Council, which had about 300 decisions, so but this was one of the one of the first one, and in fact, they decided in decision three on mental pain and anguish that there were no amounts and asked the secretariat for a paper to explain how this could be done and um, read it. And I worked myself uh, on that a lot, and we, we prepared information for the Governing Council, and they, then they came up with this with this decision. As you will see here in this, uh, I open my version uh, here, there are a number of mental pain and anguish that has been um, uh, decided on and agreed on. And practically for any types of loss, apart from um, torture, hiding, uh, hostage taking, uh, witnessing, uh, I mean, being subject to harm or witnessing harm to a family member, they are all been provided compensation for. And the, the amounts and for the, for the sexual assault, for instance, there is, a, there is a mental pain and anguish, which is natural. And I use this opportunity to say that when yesterday on the, um, the first panel, this issue was, came up, I fully agree that the number of, um, number of persons, the number of um, female persons there should be in the report. I think it's, it will be quite justified to be increased to 100%, but maybe for the men, a percentage 
could be could could be added. But you see that uh, the UNCC, these these are all um, uh, there. In addition, the last one is very interesting. That one of the member of the uh, council wanted to add at the end that if someone is in a situation that is deprived of all economic resources and lots of difficulty, even that is a psychological harm, and there should be comp comp compensation for that, for, for that part. I, I leave you to read it later. It is available to the organizers. And I also remind you that decision three also is important. So read these two, read these two together. Now for here, I would suggest to do it the same way as was done uh, at the time in UNCC. Of course, at that time, the current resources were not available, and now it's easier to make research and find more, more precedent to, to add this. The first stage should be to think about what should be the heads of losses for psychological harms, and then the second would be what should be the amount to be allocated for each of for each of um, the, 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 this harm. I like to um, stop here with a short conclusion. I think the report is an excellent report. Uh, a small point I hadn't mentioned, another issue that it doesn't mention, and yesterday also was not mentioned, what is the margin of error in this report? Uh, normally, I mean, our authors have been very open, so they can, they can mention that as well. And as you know, a percentage of, I don't know, four, five, six percent in every report is normal. In this situation, I think it can even go higher and can go up to 10% or around, around 10%. So they shouldn't, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't worry about that. I also want to mention that when I say that there is a need to prop up the reports more, to have background information, to add um, more statistics and all that. First of all, I don't mean to create work for the authors. I mean, others <laughs> can, can do that. Organizers can find a way to do it, but uh, to do, and also the legal aspect, of course, to do that. And second also, I am personally convinced that even with more work, the report will not, the result will not be much different. And that is one of the uh, reasons, one of the important elements for um, mass claims processing. Mass claims processing is not an exact science. You will not pay each person the exact amount that they are owed. You pay them an approximate amount. But it's possible to pay an exact amount, but then they have to wait five years, 10 years for this term, for the processing and all that, for like the normal courts that it takes, takes, takes time. Here, here is the same. I mean, if you want a quick report and go that, then that's it. And the marginal error will be, will be, will be higher. Uh, again, it's an excellent report, but there is room for some improvement and for some uh, additions, and in particular, and mainly the question of psychological harm or MPA, as, as it was called in the jargon of the UNCC. Thank you very much. Dr. Kasazi, thank you very much uh, for uh, your contribution.
um, uh, I am sure that in addition to those uh, of us who have been following and watching and those who are watching the YouTube stream, that our colleagues from the Brattle team were indeed uh, uh, watching um, very keenly and, and following your observations. Um, and we may very well hear from them uh, uh, separately outside of the context of the symposium, of course. Um, in terms of what can be made uh, available to the public, thank you very much for pointing us towards the decisions of the UN Compensation Commission, including in mental pain, anguish, and suffering, and how that maps on to uh, psychological harm. We can absolutely post those to the website as well. They are publicly available as they are UN documents, so they will be as available for consultation as uh, the Brattle Report itself is. We will now turn to uh, Professor Shepard, um, who, of course, whose contribution to both symposia, um, and in particular in her role as uh, a historian, as an advocate in these issues for many years, has been um, incalculable uh, uh, to uh, the, the subject of, of this symposium. Uh, Professor Shepard, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Uh, I will try to be brief. I just wanted to make a few comments on some of the issues raised yesterday and today. Um, first of all, I really want to appreciate all the work that has gone into this by the Brattle Group and uh, all the work that Judge Robinson and colleagues yesterday and today put into this effort. This is really marvelous. And Judge Robinson, thank you again for having asked me to play some role into the content, uh, the, the contents already there and those that will be added. Now, yesterday we were talking about uh, genocide because of the drastic population decline in the Caribbean. I wanted to just say that it is true and I was listening keenly to Judge Yusuf. There was an anti-natalist policy in the Caribbean up to the abolition of the transatlantic trafficking in enslaved Africans. Uh, well, the act anyway, because we know it continued illegally, still illegally, way beyond 1807 in the case of the British Caribbean. Now, they... The motto, the almost motto of these planters in the Caribbean was, it is cheaper to buy than to breed. And demographic historians have written about this uh, for a long time. So the, the treatment was deliberate. The chattelization, the dehumanization, the construction of the codification of laws, to declare our ancestors non-persons, all of that was deliberate. And death was not only because of disease, it was because of mistreatment, and it was because of deliberate killing. The Maroons, for example, waged an 80 years war against the British, and the casualty rate was high, I guess on both sides. But there was deliberate killing of protesters over the two centuries of the British being in Caribbean. You have to look at what happened after every war of resistance.
to see the deliberate hanging, the murder of people. So I don't accept that we can't use genocide because it wasn't really deliberate what happened. It was almost like a casualty of the system. That's one. Then when we come to the post-slavery, the, the post-trafficking period, when there was suddenly a pro-natalist policy, we have to understand also that there was resistance to that by the enslaved. The planters in the post-1807 period in the British colonized Caribbean attempted to base the regeneration of the enslaved laboring population on women. So women's conditions would have been placed at the center of this sudden pronatalist policy. This would require the cooperation of women. And the, the literature, the historiography is replete with scholars on gender issues showing that women were not cooperating. They could have fed them some more. They could have taken them out of the field some more. They had control over their bodies. And so there was a deliberate attempt by enslaved women not to cooperate. In other words, what I'm saying is that we have to factor in these issues when we're talking just with figures. Figures alone can't tell the whole story. And that's why we have the work of people like Professor Barry Higman from the 1980s. Uh, he's a quantitative and demographic historian. And then when we come to talk about USA, sometimes I get the impression that we talk in glowing terms about pronatalist policy there and treatment. We have to remember that, and historians have written about this for a long time, when we talk about demographics, we have to consider the the the, the place that we're talking about. In other words, it is well known that the, demo, that, that the, the, the death rate was highest where enslaved people worked in the sugar plantation. However, there were contexts both in the U.S. and in the Caribbean where enslaved people did not work on sugar plantations. And it is shown that the demographics in those contexts would have been different from on the sugar plantations. Now, it may not have affected that much the overall population increase or decrease, but we have to be careful when we're generalizing across um, economic enterprises in the Caribbean. And then we have to also remember that part of what happened in the United States of America, and Fogel and Engerman have written about this for a long time, a long time ago. It was deliberate breeding. Some of it was deliberate breeding because as the colonization continued, as the United States tried to open up to the West, my understanding from reading U.S. historians, some of them, is that there was an attempt to use enslaved, the regeneration of the enslaved population to help to conquer a new land. And so, again, it wasn't because they liked enslaved people and wanted to treat them better. I think we have to nuance that kind of argument. And so uh, those were the, you know, the few um, comments. Uh, and maybe finally, 
again, I was reading um, the, the QC um, Gifford, Anthony Gifford. And in defending reparation and looking at the legal aspects, he has said that um, there's no statute of limitation in, term, in talking about reparation for crime against humanity. And I think we have, and we, have, we have already concluded that the whole trafficking and satellization were uh, illegal at the time they were committed and that reparation is, is justified. And also in terms of the descendants and, the, and those living with the legacies, he also says that there is nothing in international law which prevents descendants uh, who have never, uh, of ancestors who never got uh, compensation for claiming on behalf of their ancestors. So I, I, I hope that this uh, could be maybe debated a little bit more. And uh, then maybe I should also say that I agree with Judge Yusuf. And it is a, as a, I'm a, I'm a historian, it's, it's a painful thing for me. Judge Robinson and I talk about this all the time. The way in which the education system is done preparing our children each generation to know what happened and to ensure that they pass on this knowledge. Carbon history is not compulsory beyond a certain level, the lower level in the, in the schools. And even when it is done at the higher levels, it's a choice. We have been pushing to change this. And Judge Yusuf is right. If the Dutch apology and what transpired uh, this year does not filter down into to the curriculum, if there's not curriculum reformation, then this will just stay and, you know, the old people will know and the young people won't know and so on. So this is a quanti an, an effort of quantification. It's just that surrounding it has to be a context. And this might not be a, a, a you know, numbers context. Um, and then I listen carefully also to just Yusuf about to whom will this be paid, whatever the quantity, and how will it be used. And again, since 2013, the CARICOM heads of government tasked the CARICOM Reparation Commission with drawing up or answering just that question. And for the region, there's a 10-point plan which talks about why and who um, should be entitled, and how and the and the and the avenues through which that repair should take place. So it's not a payout; it is apology, it is debt cancellation, it is technology transfer, it is attention to psychological harm, to education, to health, so that it's an infrastructure, social social infrastructural. A blueprint or strategy towards repair. So I just wanted to throw out those um, comments uh, and again to thank everyone um, for this wonderful work. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Shepard, indeed. Uh, again, not just for those comments, but for your contribution to the work of the symposium and for your enduring work over, over the decades. Um, on these critical issues. 
Um, we now turn for the closing remarks for this symposium to Judge Patrick Robinson, the chair of the symposium. Judge Robinson, you have the floor. Uh, thank you very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I, I take the opportunity to thank all of the participants in the symposium, uh, Sir Hilary Beckles, as well as all of those who discussed the Brattle Report, George Yusuf, Dr. Mamadou Hebi, Professor Adrian Wing, Dr. Mustafa Kazazi, and Dr. Don Marshall. Of course, on behalf of the symposium, I express my gratitude to the Brattle Group of Valuators for the very significant work they have done in producing this report. And if you'll allow me, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to mention that the work was done pro bono. I must also thank Professor David Eltis for his groundbreaking research on slave voyages, which has played a pivotal role in the symposium work on the quantification of reparations. And thanks are also due to Samantha Campbell and Michael Hilton, two young Jamaicans who prepared valuable tables which assisted the Brattle Group in its work. I'd like also to thank Ms. Priscilla Robinson, who has assisted me in my work as a member of the symposium's advisory committee. Now I have to, in the Jamaican language, uh, big up Ms. Natalie Reed, who made the administrative and other arrangements for the symposium. How she was able to do that in combination with her law practice, I will never be able to understand. We are also indebted to Professor Chantal Thomas, who introduced the discussions yesterday. And finally, uh, my thanks to Professor Gregory Schaffer, who is the president of the American Society of International Law, for his introductory remarks. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bracket Group have quantified the reparations due for TCS at over $101 trillion. This figure comprises approximately $78 trillion as reparations for the harm caused during enslavement and approximately $22 trillion for the harm caused in the period after enslavement. These figures are what former slaveholding countries are required to pay by way of compensation to the descendants of the enslaved. In respect of the period during enslavement, Table 29 sets out the sum that each country in which enslavement was carried out is entitled to receive as compensation. It also identifies the former slaveholding country to pay that compensation. And table 18 sets out the compensation in the post-enslavement period that each country in which TCS 
was carried out, is entitled to receive. At the same time, it identifies the former slaveholding country that is to pay that reparation. And I just mentioned, I am not insensitive to what George Yusuf said about who is to receive the compensation, what groups of people will have to attend to that. Ladies and gentlemen, the symposium is historic in that it has, through the Grappler Report comprehensively, set out the sums to be paid by all former slaveholding countries to all the descendants of the enslaved. In that regard, please recall that in my opening remarks, I said that we, descendants of the enslaved, wherever we are today, we all came to these parts on the same boat. Of course, the symposium, as acknowledged in the report, has built on the work done by many others in the field, including Professor Hilary Beckles, Professor Vereen Shepherd, and Professor Robert Beckford. I wish to comment on one aspect of the report. It shows that reparations in the sum of about $78 trillion must be paid by a number of former slaveholding states to the descendants of the enslaved in several countries for wrongful conduct during the period of enslavement. Of that sum, uh, to take an example, Jamaica is to receive $7.5 trillion, and the United Kingdom is required to pay as compensation to the countries in which it carried out TCS some $19 trillion. Now, by any measure, these are large sums. I'd like to make the following comments. Bratis report is of a very high quality, evidencing much learning and scholarship from experienced economists and valuators. The methodology is carefully explained and it shows an admirable rigor in its analysis. Moreover, Brattle has been conservative in its conclusion. It is where Brattle had to make assumptions about the number of people born into slavery outside the United States. For every enslaved person embarked to the United States, 22 persons were born into slavery. However, this ratio was likely lower in other countries. For example, the calculation used in the documentary, The Empire Pays Back, assumes one person born to slavery for every three that were embarked. As a conservative assumption, the Brattle Group followed this one to three ratio in their calculations. <clears throat> Moreover, although there was more than ample evidence to support an interest rate of 3%, Brattle used the lower rate of 2.5%. Why then are the figures so high? Ladies and gentlemen, the figures are high because the period for the calculation of compensation at a particular rate of interest runs 
for hundreds of years from the date of enslavement to the present day. The report makes the point that the payment of interest preserves the time value of money and that one of the purposes of an interest rate is to offset inflation. It is interesting to note that the International Law Commission's articles on state responsibility explicitly address the question whether the principle of full reparation may lead to disproportionate and even crippling requirements so far as the responsible state is concerned. The commentary on Article 34 refers to the principle of proportionality as an aspect of the obligation to make full reparations. Thus, Article 35 precludes restitution if it would involve a burden out of all proportion to the benefit gained by the other injured party. Similarly, Article 36 states that satisfaction should not be out of proportion to the injury. While there is no such provision in relation to compensation, it has to be noted that under Article 36, the obligation is to compensate for damage that has actually occurred as a result of the wrongful conduct. The question whether compensation may be too burdensome for the responsible state was recently addressed by the International Court of Justice. In its 2022 judgment, in the armed activities on the territory of the Congo, Democratic Republic of the Congo versus Uganda, a war that lasted five years between the two countries, the ICJ considered the question whether in determining the amount of compensation, account should be taken of the financial burden imposed on the responsible state, given its economic condition, in particular, if there is any doubt about the state's capacity to pay without compromising its ability to meet its people's basic needs. And after considering the total amount of compensation awarded to the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as the terms of the payment of the compensation, the court concluded that it was, here I quote, satisfied that the total sum awarded and the terms of payment remain within the capacity of Uganda to pay, end of quote. Ladies and gentlemen, I would not conclude without addressing the important issue raised by Dr. Mamadou Hebi yesterday. Dr. Hebi observed that in determining the number of persons born into enslavement, the Bratton Group had two options. It chose the law option following the approach taken in the documentary, The Empire Pays Back. That documentary, as already mentioned, worked on the assumption that for every three embarkations to the Caribbean, one person was born into slavery, as distinct from the situation in the USA, 
where 22 persons were born into slavery for every one enslaved person embarked to the United States. It appeared to Dr. Havey that this approach was taken by Bratton because it was safer and more conservative. But Dr. Havey, good international lawyer that he is, questions whether a determination should not have been made as a matter of law as to the number of persons born into enslavement. He has raised an important issue relating to the allocation of decision-making responsibilities concerning the work of the symposium. When I started examining the legal framework for reparations for transatlantic chattel slavery, I immediately realized that reparations could not be determined by experts without some other body having a role in that determination. There had to be a body that would receive the reports of the experts and ultimately come to a conclusion on the reparations that are due. And that was why I established an advisory committee. But admittedly, I was very conflicted as to the role of this committee. At times I felt that it was for the committee and not for the experts to determine reparations on the basis of the principle of equitable considerations. In the result, the matter was never settled, but we do have an advisory committee and one of its functions is to resolve difficult issues. In relation to the particular matter raised by Dr. Habe, I should say that the determination of the number of persons born into enslavement should be made as a matter of law on the basis of the principle of equitable considerations, which I explained yesterday. Essentially, it allows for a reasonable estimation. In conclusion then, Bracken's lower assumption is consistent with the principle of equitable considerations. But Dr. Avery raised another matter he raised the issue of reparations for Africa resulting from transatlantic chattel slavery. I had included population displacement as a head of damage um, in one of the earlier iterations of heads of damages. I believe it was felt that we should concentrate on reparations for the descendants of those who were enslaved in the Americas and the Caribbean. However, there can be no doubt that the population displacement experienced by African countries significantly affected their growth and development. And after hearing from Dr. Havey, and Judge Yusuf on this matter. I want to say that this is a matter that deserves the attention of the advisory committee, and we will look into it. May I just briefly comment on what Judge Yusuf had to say about 
Article 30 and the obligation to cease a wrongful act if it is continuing. He is absolutely right. And I thank him for reminding us. We, take, we tend to take things for granted sometimes. You know? But it is very important that in our work, we should tell the former slaveholding countries that they must cease the wrongful act, the discrimination that continues, you know. And he's also absolutely right about focusing on the descendants of the enslaved. Doesn't mean that you forget our ancestors. But what we face today is a set of people who are disadvantaged and generally impoverished on account of transatlantic chattel slavery. Also, he was absolutely correct about the stress on the Netherlands and other countries providing an account of the violations in educational materials at all levels as a form of satisfaction. And Professor Shepard has, has addressed that. And I'd also like to thank Dr. Mustafa Kazazi for what he has just told us, in particular Dr. Kazazi being a practitioner in the field, he has brought his experience to bear and he has drawn our attention to the practice of the UNCC, which we will look at in relation to psychological harm. I remember that yesterday, um, Professor Adrian Wing uh, pointed to um, a law in, not sure whether it is in her state or in the US state at the federal level, that has a provision in relation to um, compensation for psychological harm. So those are two areas that we need to look into. Ladies and gentlemen, in closing, let me say that the advisory committee will examine the report, taking into account the indubitable claim of the descendants of the enslaved to full compensation, as well as the possibility that the sums identified in the report as compensation may be burdensome. And we will also take into account the law relating to it. The committee will consider this matter and provide a report on the sums to be paid in short order. Thank you very much. Those are my closing remarks. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Judge Robinson. Um, in, in just wrapping up uh, uh, the, the proceedings of uh, the second symposium, taking account, of course, of the very important contributions and the dialogue and, to a certain extent, the debate that uh, has been taking 
place among the participants um, in, uh, in this symposium. It would be remiss if, as uh, on behalf of those who have played a role in organizing both symposia, I did not, of course, acknowledge and again thank the University of the West Indies and the Center for Reparation Research for their incredibly important uh, uh, support for uh, the symposia, and of course, the substantive contributions of Vice Chancellor uh, Sir Hilary Beckles and Professor Shepherd in their capacity as historians in this field as well. Um, and of course, the virtual platform um, and the facilitation of this conversation over the course of the last few years um, and the maintenance of the web page that makes all of this possible uh, is due to uh, the commitment and the support of the American Society of International Law, um, which of course began uh, under the previous president and previous executive director, uh, Catherine Amerifar and Mark Egrast, and continues uh, with the current president, Greg Schaefer, um, the uh, current uh, executive director, uh, Michael Cooper, um, and we are, of course, we remain indebted to the staff of ASIL uh, at Tiller House, um, uh, with whom much is possible and to whom we remain um, indebted, uh, in particular Wes Rist uh, and Jimmy Steiner and their colleagues as well. Um, the uh, uh, recordings of all the days of the symposia, four in total, will remain available on the site, as will the materials for the first symposium and those that have and will be posted for the second symposium. Um, uh, again, I think we have heard this from all of the speakers in recognition of the truly significant contribution that these symposia have made and the unprecedented work done by many uh, of our participants. Um, uh, uh, the role of ASIL in making that webpage uh, available and continuing to be available will serve an important educational um, uh, role as well. But as Judge Robinson, Professor Shepard, and so many else have said, um, that is only part of what the project uh, entails. So with that, uh, we will leave you all um, for those who are watching Good day, good evening, and good night, wherever you may be in the world. And for those who watch these recordings later on, thank you for your attention to these matters. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.